welcome to The Window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier. Well, we're talking oysters again today. The The World is Your Oyster Edition, part two uh, of The Window. Um, getting back to all things oysters, we uh, talked previously about some uh, new North Carolina oysters. We talked about how to shuck them cleanly. And of course, if you're going to uh, shuck oysters, you'll need a knife to do it with. And we have uh, no one better to talk about oysters knives and Quentin Middleton, who's uh, going to join us uh, and, and talk about blades and all things to do with custom knives. Well, I want to welcome up uh, our next guest uh, as we're talking about oysters uh, and all, all things oysters. We got Quentin Middleton from uh, Middleton Made Knives, which is in St. Stephen, South Carolina. Great town. The great town, <laughs> uh, which is out, how far outside uh, Charleston is that? It's, it's about uh, an hour outside. I went okay. through it on the train last night. Oh, really? Coming back from Richmond. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. I felt like we still had a ways to go. <laughs> it was probably pretty dark. It was and, yeah, dark. Yep. Yep. It is a waste, but uh, Quentin... Um, well, Middle Maze Knives make some of the most in-demand chef knives, uh, really, I guess you could say, now in the country. You're really selling them all over well, the I place, try. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, it's, um, my knives have been sold all over the place, and I'm very humble about it, and I'm very thankful about it. Well, so it, 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 let's fill folks in. How, how did you get started in this? Um, from watching Conan. That's what, <laughs> <laughs> like watching Conan and Star Wars. And, um, like, that's where the passion really started. And fast forward... Uh, bunch of years after that, um, I still had the passion growing up. Um, I ran into a friend of mine working in a local mall here. Um, he said, like, oh, I make knives for a living, and I, I became his apprentice for six years and blew it up ever since. And so did you have kitchen experience yourself before you were making those kind of None. <laughs> um, like, it's like my whole family cooks, and, like, we were very, very uh, uh food-oriented family, and so I know how to cook. Uh, my brother's a chef down here. For research development-wise, like, I came to ask different chefs like Sean Brock, Craig Deal, and a bunch of other local celebrities here, and I call them and I watch them in their kitchens and or ask for their feedback, and it just, like, their friends told their friends, and it just blew up. Yeah. Well, when it comes to a chef's knife, you know, I, I know that I think I, I read with Craig Deal, you had to go back and forth several times trying to until you got yeah. the got it right. What what makes the knife work for a chef? Yeah, you know, what what's sort of the key things they're looking for that you know, make a good knife versus a not um, so good one? Just just think about like when you're working at a desk or working at a bench or working in the kitchen, uh, uh, long re- repetitive hours is just like so. I have to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like so, that's that's the main thing that I look for in my end user, like to make sure that they're comfortable and be able to use it for a long period of time. Like so, there are certain computers that their desk raise up, so yeah. you won't develop carpal And in my mind, like okay, what can I do? to uh, alleviate carpal tunnel maybe over the years and or certain calluses that that develop on their hand or what 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 uh, will make it feel like an extension of themselves and this is a very rudimentary question but I don't know anything about knives so when we're talking about knife are we just talking about a blade and a handle is it just two parts pretty much yeah, yeah okay yeah. okay and so and so you can adjust both of those elements yes. in order I can to- I can uh, I can adjust because basically I'm starting from scratch okay and so I can make 
I like to make the knife well balanced so like you can balance it on your finger. Mm-hmm. But like but there are some times or some instances where the blade has to be a little bit more heavier mm-hmm. or or certain people want all the weight in their hand. Like so the the blade is very, very light, so it's very fast. Mm-hmm. Like so it, it all depends on the uh per the person preference. And so you make the blade first and then the handle? Is Correct. that how that yeah. works? Okay. Like, and, yeah. Uh so like after I make the blade and once I do all the grinding and the cutting and the hammering, um and then when it's time to pick a handle, either I ask what they want or I, w- I have a big box full of different types of wood and I kind of like which one speaks to mm-hmm. each other. And that like, what, what, like what does it what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. And and that's why people say like, oh, dang, I really like that. Or I can pick your knife off from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like it just it just stands out. Mm-hmm. And so that blade and you're cutting that from a larger sheet of metal, or um, that, that... there are two, there are two different types of processes of making knife. You have stock removal and you have forging. I do both. Okay. You have to know a little bit about knife making to understand what I mean by this term. I'm getting ready to say um, it's basically a funnel. Uh, think of the concept of a funnel. Um, you got forging on one side of the funnel and you got stock removal on on the other side. It all funnels down to the same exact thing. Let me say it like this. I raise my pig, I butcher my pig, and then I cook my pig. Mm-hmm. And stock removal is I bought the pig from, <laughs> <laughs> right. and then then I butcher it, then I cook it. Mm-hmm. Like so, in, in that in that instance, so like that's how I can best explain it for foodies. Right. Okay. No, that makes sense. So you could end up with a really great knife, even if someone else, if you did the stock. Yes. 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 Okay. Oh right. yes. Right, right. Oh yes. But you might have a different relationship to it. Yeah, I I, I, I I'm I'm pretty open, and I mm-hmm. see. Um, the benefits of of both sides. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. So it, it it all depends on the end user. So a lot of the people that forge don't like the people that do stock removal, <laughs> or the stock removal people like ah you don't need to do that. Like, <laughs> right, like, right. So, like, <laughs> like so it's 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 a sometimes it can be a catch twenty two. I'm on both sides. Mm-hmm. Like so I at the end of the day I make the knife for my my, my clients, mm-hmm. and if they're happy and they're enjoying what I'm doing, I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing. How long does it take to to make a typical chef's knife? I know I'm sure it can range, but yes, um, I, I can answer that in <laughs> several ways. Um, the first answer is is kind of snobbish answer. Um, it took me 15 years to make a knife. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the and the easy way, the one that you're really looking for, I can make a knife within maybe hands-on time about four hours. Okay. Yeah. And but there are different processes that takes um, like heat treating and tempering. Those are like it has to be in a controlled atmosphere, mm-hmm. and sometimes it 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 varies from two hours to thirty minutes, and like so, it it all depends. So I I typically tell people give me about four to six weeks to make your knife because things do go wrong. Right. <laughs> and what? And you're certainly so you're not you're not mass producing these. Yeah, by I'm not, yeah. You're not pumping them out. <laughs> I wish that'd be nice. Well, <laughs> it takes I time. I don't have the money to do that. Right. 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 And so again, I, I I just don't know anything about this. So when I look at one of the blades that you make, I mean the metal, it's beautiful, right? So what's making that? What's making it look that way? Where okay. Like, so you're 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 talking about Damascus. That's mm-hmm. like that's like also let me put it in food terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of um of puff pastry, mm-hmm. um like so puff pastry has so many layers. The same thing with steel. I have to alternate uh, two different types of steel and forge it together. And uh, it has to forge well. So basically, I have to get it hot enough to weld to itself. Mm-hmm. And basically, it, it starts off with a big ingot of steel. Mm-hmm. And uh, we use a hydraulic press that can basically push it out and draw it out. And just like the Japanese will fold it. So what we do, we cut it in half. So that piece of ingot that was 
maybe have 25 layers mm-hmm. that ingot that we cut off. They have other 25. We stack it on each other, and that's 50, and we do that till we get – we can keep it at 50 or we can do more. Right. And uh, either we can twist it, drill it, or do any kind of thing to kind of manipulate the patterns okay. to, to get um, different uh, figuring in, mm-hmm. the, in, in the steel. Yeah, if you've ever seen one of the blades, they're really amazing. I'd say go yeah. online and, ch- and check them out. Just the, the figures on the steel itself is just gorgeous. And so once someone has one of these knives, how, how are they supposed to sharpen it every day? How do you take care oh, of it? Oh, no, like it's, um, and that's that's the big thing about uh, custom knife makers. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, mass-produced knives, like once you use it, it'll be nice for a few months, mm-hmm. and then it's a... Uh, Paperweight or a drawer um, clutterer, <laughs> like and and people just like oh, my knives are dull. Like, and what we do is we make sure that our blade are hard, is harder than the ordinary knife, and eventually you will have to sharpen it. And then that's why I tell people um, when you buy a knife from me, it's not just this one transaction. It's a it's a relationship. So like, well, you can call me and you can ship a knife to me and I'll sharpen it, or um, I can suggest what you can do. Um, to sharpen it if you want to try it yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you mess it up, you can send it to me. So for sharpening, like, is it more than just a regular whetstone? Or um, is the, it more the, technique? Or? The, there is, like, it, there, are, there are ways to, like, I, I use uh, my belt grinders mm-hmm. and um, faster ways to do it. But, like, there is, like, a, a zen kind of thing <laughs> when, you, when you're kind of sharpening on the stone, going back and forth, back and forth. And that can be done, but I to make it faster for me. But you have, the, you have better yeah, tools. I, I have tools. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mom always say, if you, if you don't have the tools, you can't do the job. So. We were talking about oysters uh, <laughs> this week. And so I, I know you do make oyster knives yes. as well. And um, they're they're a little different than the typical oyster knives, at least ones I've seen. They're, they're sort of like, well, the blades aren't straight. They've got sort of a hook in them. Is that Yes, is that yes. Right? Like, um, so... I'm pretty sure since we're in the South, everybody that goes to an oyster roast either drinking beer or drinking sodas or something like that, but mainly beer. And um, that little hook on my oyster knives is a, is a bottle opener. <laughs> like, so I call it the brew shucker. And uh, so, <laughs> or if the people that don't eat oysters, a uh, beer defender. Like, so, <laughs> like, so, um, so basically, um, I'm pretty sure you went to the oyster roast, and um, someone either uh, drinking a beer, and I've seen people pop open beers with their ring, mm-hmm. hit it on the table. I've seen very um, elaborate ways. Like, so I said, why why not uh, put put the whole thing together, and why break the stride? I can shuck and pop and just <laughs> and keep it going. So And so are you training people? I mean, you've got people well, working with you? Well, I've, I've, had, I've had apprentices, mm-hmm. and I've had... Um, People come in to learn to make knives, and my the person my my mentor his name is Jason Knight. Um, he he taught me how to make knives. And he told me the story why he didn't he charged people to uh, to learn from him, and I didn't listen. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I would let them come to my house, and the same thing that happened to him happened to me. Like it was, I would allow people to come in, and I would basically make a make a killer knife. For them, and um, and they say, yeah, I want to learn, and, and I'll give them all my knowledge. And once they get a knife that day, they'll leave, and I'll never hear from them. <laughs> so basically, they're leaving with a few hundred dollars nice knife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I waste my time. Like, 
and waste my day and now like so now I can't sell the knife. Now I can't sell the knife. Like, so, so now um someone someone actually called me the other day like, hey, can you teach me? Like, well, I'm gonna have to charge you now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I've been burnt a few times. Yeah, yep. So when chefs have different requests for knives, I, 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 can you tell in their food like, oh, that's a heavy blade guy? Like, does it all come together kind um, of? Um, it's. It's, you can't really tell by the food. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell, like if, when they're prepping. Yes, I can tell when they're prepping. Mm-hmm. But like, um, and when, like if I'm watching a video and I'm seeing how the knife moves, yes, I can tell if that's a heavier knife or or um, lighter knife or anything like that. But um, a lot of times you can tell by their personality. I was just gonna say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I can, like I, if someone is very kind of like. Rigid? Uh, huh? Like rigid? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to look for a nice word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meticulous yeah. and yeah. wound up tight. Yeah. There are other words I could say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like so, um, but yeah, I can tell. Like, say, okay, if they're very rigid or they're very loose or like, so I can I can kind of tell like what they're looking for and um, a, lot, a lot of people that that are rigid and and straight on they they want uh, Japanese type knives. They want um, like. Uh, a lot of the old type French knives. Mm-hmm. I, I get a lot of information from body language and how they hold themselves, mm-hmm. and and that's that's what I pay paid attention to early on when I uh, learned from Craig and his basically his whole staff, and I watch how they how they mm-hmm. hold themselves and. And so it, it just run me through, since, again, I don't know about knives. I mean, a, a Japanese knife, a German knife, a French knife. What what are the characteristics of some of these? That you okay. Know? <laughs> <laughs> um, a French knife, if, if it's basically it comes down to geometry and uh, steel type. Um, the French knives uh, or the German knives, they're, if the, the geometry of the blade is a more of a that rocking motion that everybody's thinking about and like, oh, I want to rock with the knife. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese knives are a little bit more straighter, so it's a little bit more of a plunge cut. It's, it's going straight down mm-hmm. instead of rocking rocking the knife. And the uh, steel preference for um, Japanese knives is the steels are very much harder than French knives. Um, because I'm pretty sure people are saying like, oh, um, I got this knife and it chipped on me. Um, it's, it's because of the type of steel that the Japanese use. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I kind of, the way that I do stuff, like I, I take a French type handle and a Japanese geometry and kind of like mesh it together. Mm-hmm. So, and that's kind of like what I've learned and what I've kind of adapted as my own style. So even though you're working toward what the chef requests, you you have a style. Someone would say this is a Middleton. Yes, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Like I, I always try to put a little bit of me in me, <laughs> even if they say like I want this, I want this. No, try this. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. There's a reason why they don't make the knife. Yeah, right. yeah I, I hear you. But <laughs> <no>. <laughs> so we've talked about chef knives, oyster knives, those kind of. I mean, anything you're working on that's new? And well, actually, yes. Like I'm working on. Um, it's still it. Like I. I a couple and like it's still like in a developmental stage. It's a uh, folding chef knife. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a it's a camp type knife. Mm-hmm. Like because um, if you bought a knife from me, you don't want to take it outside and go grill or cook on your your deck. So um, a lot of traveling chef they they got knife bags. So like if you can get just one prep knife mm-hmm. um, that you can carry around, put in your back pocket, put or just throw in your um, in your um, suitcase and just go with that and uh, that's that's something that I'm working on, and it's still in the it's 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 a finished phase, but I'm I'm still tweaking it. And that it's folding. It's yes, I mean, it's, yeah, okay. it's it's like a, a six inch six inch sentaku, mm-hmm. um, but it has a little bit more of a point on the tip, and it basically in it folds in on itself. Mm-hmm. Like, and you can just stick it right in your back pocket and and just go with it. Cool. 
And do I? Have, I think I have one in my truck. <laughs> <laughs> Good place to keep it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else you yeah. want to talk about? I'm Quinn Middleton, <laughs> and you can uh, order some of my stuff from middletonmadeknives.com, or you can go to middletonmadeknives.bigcartel.com, and you can order straight from that. Cool. And so there is inventory, even though people are ordering. I mean, there's... Like, um, you can click and order it. Yeah. But it may take a while. It'll get there. It'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> these, but these knives are worth waiting for. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. Is, right. yeah, this right. isn't something you just... Yeah, this isn't Amazon.com. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Um, the, I would say you know, the oyster knives, there is definitely at the oyster roast, you, you sort of have these levels, like somebody just shows up and uses what's ever there, but then the serious guy shows up with his own knife. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. If you show up with their own custom handmade knife, <laughs> you're going to win the, well, win the oyster roast. And how crazy will you get? I mean, have you been asked to like customize the handle where you've got to, you got put in names, you put I've, in I've, slogans? I've, I've had ocean like for ocean knives. Mm-hmm. I've had people like, "Can you um, put finger grooves in it so I can when I grip it, like, <laughs> it'll stay there." And, uh, I've had that, and I've, um, can you um, can you put deer antler on it, and can you do can you do um, uh, this oyster shell type thing on it? Like I've, I've you name it, I probably mm-hmm. they've asked me and. Early on, I, I would take on anything. Now I got like, no, I don't want to do that. It's <laughs> like I want to. <laughs> All right. Well, Quentin, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so great. much. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, now that we've sort of figured out all about how to get oysters open, how to, how to use knives, everything else, uh, I thought it'd be good to talk a little bit about oyster history, certainly in our in last episode, uh, talking about the emerald oysters got me thinking back to your lot of research I've been doing, just finishing up a, a new book on the history of uh, dining in the 19th century South, and really um, didn't know until I got into it that exactly how long the oyster tradition uh, runs in, in, in Charleston. It goes goes way back. I, I knew about oyster houses in New York, oyster cellars in, in New York, uh, but I didn't realize that Charleston had quite a bit of a history there as, as well. Um, really starting in the 1820s, um, oyster houses started popping up in Charleston, and they were inspired by the ones in New York. In New York, there were really oyster cellars, which you would go downstairs to the mm-hmm. basement below a building. Nothing worked so well uh, here in Charleston where everything's yeah. at, at sea level. Um, but they were on the ground floor, at least, of, of various various but, buildings. Was that intentional to keep the oysters chilled? In New York? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I would assume just because it was cheap real estate, um, these were certainly not – the New York ones are not super nice. I think they were dark. You had mm-hmm. you know, a bar in there. Um, they actually uh, – Cook the oysters on yeah a charcoal fire mm-hmm. where uh, at least at um, uh, what's his name at least at Thomas Downing's uh, famous uh, oyster bar I believe it was on Canal Street um, it, he had cooked them over a wood or uh, a fire an actual fire of oak shavings you actually sort of roast your oysters right there and then customers could dress them up and and eat them and drink a lot of beer with them so um, it's a good question that may be because of the cool but it may just be like a you know cheap. Cheap real estate, a mm-hmm. way, way to set up a little restaurant. But there are several uh, in New York, in fact, or several in Charleston inspired by New York. One of them, the one of the long, most long running was David Truesdale's New York Oyster House, um, which he opened up in the, in the 1820s. There were a few other ones. Uh, S.B. Burgess had a Carolina Oyster House that lasted a long time. And then there are a lot of other ones that popped up and down. What I thought was interesting was um, finding the shipping records. They actually were importing their oysters. We talked about this uh, last time with Trace from up around Beaufort, North Carolina. Um, you know, very much local um, local Carolina oysters from the May River down near Bluffton, South Carolina. And, and they were getting in like 800 to 1,000 bushels at a time on these ships. So they were certainly 
selling quite quite a ton of, of uh, oysters. What I thought was really more interesting, which I'm surprised I've not I hadn't heard about this before, was what you know David Truesdell went on to become sort of the oyster king of of Charleston. Um, he announced it at some point that he was like in the 1830s that he was like creating he was securing a mill pond so he was going to try to raise his own oysters so he would have to ship them in mm-hmm. and that apparently didn't work because oysters don't really grow in a pond very very well but what he did do was he headed out to Sullivan's Island and basically got a, a lease on the entire northern end mm. of Sullivan's Island and wow. people who've been to Sullivan's familiar with Breach Inlet where between Sullivan's Island and Isle of Palms to the north of it, he basically took over that entire end and started cultivating oysters. Wow. And became this massive oyster cultivator. Huh. He, he sort of took a page from the rice planter's page book and created these trunks that would let him flood his oyster beds with mm-hmm. the, with the tide, and he carefully groomed them. Apparently, poachers were a problem. <laughs> uh, so he would actually, Truesdell was known to sit out overlooking his beds at night with a, a blunderbuss and a brace of pistols <laughs> to nice. chase off uh, chase off. Um, uh, you know, people trying to get his oysters. He even o- opened up a, a ver- an outpost of the New York Oyster House in, in Columbia, the capital oh, wow. of um, South Carolina, and shipped oysters up there and fed all the legislators up there. So really for about a 20, 30-year period, he was like – he had the oyster market locked up. He had all the local oysters that was he was serving as oyster house. And, and so was he just producing oysters for his restaurants or was he trying to sell them? Yeah, that's a good – that's a good question. I don't, I don't remember seeing – him offering them for sale, mm-hmm. um, like wholesale. You know, his ads for his restaurant would you know people could come take them out, but and, and families would be supplied as they as they would say. But I yeah. think it was going through his two oyster houses. Because you do see these waves of of, of you know entrepreneurs yep. in the Low Country who are like they decide that they're going to tell New York all about <laughs> whatever kind of oyster it is. Like the Bulls Bay oyster yep. had a good run. Uh, it, the various oysters that they feel like are going to. I mean, this whole idea of like a boutique oyster associated with a particular That's, place is not new. No, not new at all. Yeah. <laughs> it, they did sort of fade away in mm-hmm. a while, oh, but. The, it was amazing how, how big it was. In fact, um, Trusdale got in big trouble with everybody at Sullivan's Island because they, they, he ended up in lawsuits. That Actually, the lawsuits themselves ran into the – well, to like almost the end of the 20th century of all the various heirs and people over who owned the land mm. and had the state giving him a light uh, – a, a, this lease and all this, this kind of stuff. Um, the people at Sullivan's Island apparently were not too happy with his big oyster beds being out, out there, and they wanted the, the land for other, other purposes. But So Charleston, definitely no, nothing new here for locally – cultivated uh, oysters been going on for almost two centuries now. So I, I wanted to talk briefly about another thing I, I came across in my uh, research. I was writing about um, writing for my weekly sight unseen column, which is a, you know, a bygone restaurant. Mm-hmm. It used to be an address. And, and, and this restaurant was the Rampart Room, which was the Fort Sumter Hotel's restaurant. Um, so the Fort Sumter Hotel is not the Fort Sumter Condos. I don't know what they're yeah, – exactly so If you're familiar with Charleston, it's that big sort of tall building right on the battery looking right over the water. Yeah. Apparently um, JFK had a tryst there. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> but well, that's beyond the say, scope of my story. Yeah, but know. where did he? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so it's right in the battery. Very, very, very nice location. Um, and so in the early 1950s, this is the restaurant that the South Carolina Manufacturer Ice Association chose to host its uh, annual meeting. And it's just, I just love this story. So um, and the reason I bring this up, of course, is what are oysters without ice? I mean, those two things kind yeah, of. They, they, they literally have to go hand they, in hand. The they, oyster trade depended upon there being ice. Very much so. And so what's interesting is this is right around the period that there was a, no pun intended, kind of a sea change in the <laughs> ice industry, which is that folks could make it at home. Um, oh, I didn't think about that. Yes. That's true. Up until the mid-20th century, there are ice plants 
in Correct. every city and you would go buy your ice exactly. and take it home and put it in your ice box. You wouldn't freeze your own. No, you wouldn't make your own. There, You didn't have the electrical power in your own house to do so. Now, it's interesting. The Manufactured Ice Association, there's, so far as I can tell, there's no longer a South Carolina <laughs> branch, but there is a National Manufactured Ice Association and they are still smarting about the uh, about people making <laughs> ice at home. And if you go to their website You can now, see, I guess that would be the end. <laughs> that would just cut way into your business. Right, I mean, because they're only competition for, for decades and decades had been frozen ponds. Yeah. You know, it was like, you know, we make it or <laughs> or God makes it. And, and that was it. And suddenly people can make it at home. And there's still so much hostility that on their website now, they still quote the rumor that what did in the ice box that you would, you know, buy ice for was the Iceman. Because during World War II, <laughs> the Iceman would come to the house and he'd spend a little bit too long. And so, this, I mean, again, this is the rumor. And this is <laughs> when the men returned from war, they said, honey, we're, we're the ice man. We're, we're canceling the ice script. We're canceling our ice subscription. <laughs> we're going to make ice ourselves. So who knows if that's true. But the point is that they-, they I'm sure they have lots of justification <laughs> for why making ice at home is dangerous exactly. and leads to inferior ice and exactly. ruin the, marriages. And So this man, th- this association had come to Charleston <laughs> to make the point for that, that you should purchase your ice by the bag. And so he arranged to meet with a, an Evening Post photographer and he was going to have his picture taken um, sipping on iced coffee, which I thought was interesting. I actually didn't know that was as, as trendy then. As well, you it, yeah, push that iced coffee if yeah, you sell yeah, ice. Exactly. You know? Even though, as the reporter pointed <laughs> out, um, it was as cold outside as it was inside here in January, this reporter was just clearly not up for this. And neither was the president of the Manufactured Ice Association because they bring him the iced coffee and he says... This isn't manufactured ice. <laughs> they dared to serve in tap water. And the server at the Rampart Room tells him, she goes, everybody drinks it. It's totally fine. He said, I, I can't be seen with this. And so the story ends with him just saying, this is what we're fighting for. <laughs> That is such a sad tale. Such a sad tale. Hmm. So I just, you know, as we think about, we've talked a lot about oysters and they, you know, very frequently they're presented on a bed of ice beneath them. So I just thought it would be nice to take a minute to think about where that ice comes from. The ice is, is, uh, the story of ice is amazing how much it drove Cult, the, the, the culinary trends in the U.S. Completely. Charleston had – one of the reasons it had oyster houses so early is it had ice houses early. And this was well before the Manufactured <laughs> Ice Association. There was Frederick Tudor and other uh, entrepreneurial Yankees loaded up ships full of ice cut from frozen ponds in, in Massachusetts, brought them down, packed in sawdust, and put them in ice houses. And it was really – it wasn't until like 18-teens, 1820s that they developed – reliable enough ice houses it would keep during the summer. And lo and behold, you know, around the same time, you start getting the the, the, the ice, the oyster houses here. Because, you know, the oyster trade was in the cold months, um, but you would still need to keep them on ice, you know, in the South, at least, or they would go, they would go bad even in you know November. Or, yeah, or and I, I was going to say our friend Nick Butler over at the Public Library has a mm-hmm. podcast of his own and just did one about ice cream in Charleston and its history. So obviously, you know, oh, without, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, I yeah, check that it one. out. Um, it's the Charleston Time Machine, which is available through the Charleston County Public Library. So, and again, you know, it, it, there was a lot of um, skepticism about ice cream when it first arrived because it just they were very concerned. People in Charleston were very concerned about 
eating something so cold when it was so hot. Oh, I, oh whoa. Well, yeah, yes, I so, can see. That sounds yeah. like something my grandmother <laughs> right. would say. You know, Completely. You're, you're going to wreck your health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and, so, and so we think about, I mean, so Nick's point is, you know, the, the culinary renaissance in Charleston is completely contingent upon the availability of ice, which may very well be true. It is true. It is As true. a manufactured I, ice association I will remind you in any turn. It's a totally <laughs> defensible thesis, but I think we then sometimes forget that the economic consequences of this, like all those ponds in New England, yes. they used to just be like, you know, you hit the jackpot if you had a pond. And now, like, <laughs> now like, pond what am I going to do with that thing? So, you know, yeah. catch some fish in it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I do have to, I guess, close up. Uh, the, the, all the ice made me think about Rappahannock Oyster Bar, and we mm-hmm. had Isabella uh, in last time talking about shucking ice. Have you been in it? Have you seen the little ice machine they have at the bar? Robert, do you not know my story about the ice machine? No, I don't. Okay, my story about the ice machine. When I was reviewing Rappahannock, which is a restaurant I like very, very much. I think they do a terrific job. It was either my second or third review visit. I was seated at the Oyster Bar, and I was seated with someone who was, I think, a really good conversationalist, but I have no idea. I didn't hear a word she said because the entire time I was transfixed. (laughs) I was sitting there. I was at the bar watching the ice fall. You just watched the ice fall. You watched the ice fall, and apparently, customers. Always has like, is your air conditioning broken? But it is. This is a true ice it's, machine. It's actually cool. They have like, like raw, raw bars. They have this big ice bed with all the shells right. on and it. And so, and it, it's just like how in the grocery stores yeah. they have like the rain where you hear the thunder clap. Yep. And but anyway, so I was so little flakes of ice just fall down. Here's constantly. the punchline, which they know at Rappahannock, <laughs> which is I was so I was so fixated at that I I I decided to Google it. I was like, you know, fixation on yeah. ice, and uh, it turned out I'm anemic. That is the number one symptom is you crave ice. You crave ice. Yep. I, I did not so, know this. And it, so I looked it up and it said, you know, you're probably anemic. I went to get tested. I was severely anemic. Oh, my goodness. And the only reason I knew was, was because, because of, of this the ice. ice. So I always tell them that they saved my life. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know where the direction that story was going. Yeah. So that went in, a, I guess, yeah. a good direction. It's I mean, fantastic. I'm not, not good that you were anemic, but yeah. it's good that you figured it, it out. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, the ice, it is. I've never seen it. I'm sure other places have it, but. I, I I was just interested because it's just cool to see little it bits cool. of I ice dropping from the from the ceiling every yeah every couple saying, seconds. We, we've eaten at the Rip Rappahannock in Richmond, and I don't remember. No, I don't remember it there either. But again, I don't. I may have not have been near there. I just right. happened to be sitting recently at the bar right there by the ice uh, yeah. ice thing. And, it's very cool. Yeah, and apparently it uh, it produces just. Most of the ice they need right. comes right out of that. They every now and again have to pull some out of the back if it's really busy, but yeah. it's a continual flow of ice. Very cool. And that is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston. I see, and it smells a little bit like oyster juice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Uh, If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the very sharp J.M. Ray Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.